Welcome to OCS Field Guide, the podcast that helps you study smarter for the OCS exam. Hello and welcome back to the OCS Field Guide podcast. Today we'll be tying up some of the remaining loose ends related to the knee joint. We'll be talking about a few miscellaneous diagnoses that you should be able to recognize and distinguish from one another, and then taking a deeper look at management of patellar tendinopathy. Let's start with a question. A female volleyball player presents to an outpatient physical therapy clinic with complaint of pain in the front of her left knee. Her pain began about six weeks ago after having started playing for a club volleyball team after her school volleyball season ended. She is still able to play, and her pain actually improves as the game goes on. However, her knee hurts most when moving after periods of inactivity and the day after a game or a hard practice. Objective exam reveals isolated tenderness to palpation of the superior portion of the patellar tendon and the inferior pole of the patella. Also reveals decreased hip abduction strength and decreased quadriceps and hamstring flexibility. Which of the following is the most useful additional piece of information for making an accurate diagnosis? Is it A, playing volleyball year-round, B, valgus collapse during single leg squat, C, familiar pain with decline squat, or D, her age? Although A, B, and C are useful pieces of information that we should probably consider with this case, none of them help differentiate what the most likely pathology is in this case. The most likely two diagnoses with this history are patellar tendinopathy and Sending-Larsen-Johansson syndrome. Sports specialization is actually a predictor of both of these diagnoses, as well as patellofemoral pain and Osgood slaughters disease, so A doesn't work. B, valgus collapse during single-leg squat, is a common finding with a myriad of knee problems, including these diagnoses. Answer C, familiar pain with decline squat, again would be true of both patellar tendinopathy and SLJ. But answer D, age, is correct because it gives the most vital information to know if this is a true patellar tendinopathy or if this is an age-related growth plate irritation, as with Sending-Larsen-Johansson syndrome. Now, this is the kind of question that OCS might make into a multi-part question. And if they said age was anywhere from 10 to 14 or indicated a recent growth spurt, you're going to want to pick SLJ as the answer. We'll dig into that a little bit more in the rest of this podcast. Let's jump into the hallmarks of some miscellaneous knee diagnoses. Even if the OCS does not test you specifically on one of these diagnoses, they could pop up as other answer choices in some questions. So being familiar with them could help you rule out wrong answers, which is a great strategy for this test. Let's start out with a tissue that we don't often think of being injured, fat. Infrapatellar fat pad irritation, also known as Hoffa's knee or Hoffa's pad syndrome, will present with repetitive extension or hyperextension movements and activities, and is thus more common in sports like gymnastics. It can also present 
as secondary to a myriad of other issues, such as knee obesity, diabetes. It can occur postoperatively due to trauma from the arthroscopic equipment, etc. Pain will be located in the front of the knee behind the patellar tendon and may be provoked with forced knee extension or deep palpation in the region of the infrapatellar fat pad, which is basically along the anterior joint line behind the patellar tendon. Moving right along now to a diagnosis that is near and dear to my heart, or I should say near and dear to my right knee, IT band friction syndrome. This is very common in runners and often comes on after an increase in training load or addition of very hilly terrain. It can also happen from any activity with repeated cycling through about 20 to 40 degrees of knee flexion, which is where the IT band slides over the lateral epicondyle of the knee, such as when walking downhill or driving stick shift in stop-and-go traffic. This is characterized by pain on the lateral aspect of the knee and will often present with tenderness to palpation of the lateral epicondyle. One provocative test to confirm is the noble compression test, where the clinician will put pressure on the lateral epicondyle and then cycle the knee in and out of flexion. A positive test will reproduce the patient's familiar pain. We don't have a ton of research on the best treatment in these individuals, but what we do have points to addressing patient-specific impairments including hip and knee motor control or biomechanical issues, lower quarter strength and flexibility deficits, and or myofascial issues. Now for a few bursitis diagnoses. Remember, a lot of things get called bursitis in the medical community that really have a more complex cause. So, for the OCS, remember that a true bursitis should come along with clear signs of itis. In other words, look for things like edema and warmth and pain. Pezanserine bursitis obviously presents at the pezanserine, where the tendons of the sartorius, gracilis, and semitendinosus tendons attach. It can come along with a variety of different histories, including repetitive motions or sporting activities, and is very common in individuals with osteoarthritis of the knee. There are three main peripatellar bursitises that you might need to recognize. Suprapatellar bursitis will present about like it sounds with swelling and tenderness in the suprapatellar bursa above the kneecap. This will have a similar region of pain as something like quadriceps tendinopathy, but you can expect it to have some swelling and bogginess, while quad tendinopathy should not. Prepatellar bursitis, also known as housemaid's or carpenter's knee, will present with that same swelling and irritation right on top of the patella between the bone and the skin. This is most often brought on by repetitive kneeling or a blow to the kneecap itself. Infrapatellar bursitis, aka clergyman's knee, presents more distal close to the distal attachment of the patellar tendon and is also typically associated with kneeling, but more likely the kind of kneeling where you're sitting back on your heels with more pressure at the tibial tubercle, like a traditional prayer posture, hence the clergyman's knee, rather than being on the hands and knees as when cleaning or installing floors. Also consider age with pain and inflammation around the distal attachment of the patellar tendon. 
If you see it in a 13-year-old boy, for instance, you're more likely looking at Oshkod Slaughter's disease than infrapatellar bursitis. This brings us to the two age-specific growth plate issues that are especially important to consider in light of our discussion of patellar tendinopathy today. The two are Oscar Slaughter's disease and sending larsen johansson syndrome. Oscar Slaughter's disease is a traction apophysitis of the growth plate located at the tibial tubercle and will only occur during growth years, mostly in adolescents participating in sports that involve repetitive jumping and or squatting. It is found in females aged 8 to 13 and males aged 10 to 15. When it has been going on a while, it will often present with a prominent tibial tubercle due to calcification around the insertion of the patellar tendon. Sending Larsen-Johansson syndrome, which we touched on in our question today, is a similar traction apophysitis, but occurs at the patellar growth plate and is a little less common than OSD. It will present with pain at the inferior pole of the patella, similar to patellar tendinopathy, but is due to irritation of the growth plate located at the inferior aspect of the patella, rather than the patellar tendon attachment itself. Again, this will only happen with open active growth plates, so it is typically only found during those same growth years. As is true with so many musculoskeletal issues in adolescence, both of these conditions are much more frequent in individuals who specialize in one sport early on. Both can have a warm-up phenomenon, where pain is worse after a period of inactivity, but improves as activity continues. Both are technically considered self-limiting, as they will improve or go away completely with skeletal maturity, but that doesn't necessarily mean that kids should just play through them or that we can't help them. Also, extra caution may be warranted with SLJ, as it can develop into an actual avulsion of the inferior pole of the patella. We don't have much research to support one specific management protocol with either of these diagnoses, so I would mainly expect the OCS to examine your ability to recognize these diagnoses rather than select optimal treatment. More than likely, though, especially with an acute case of OSD or SLJ, you would be more cautious on loading the extensor mechanism early on and focus more on rest and offloading and or load management early on rather than jumping right into a pain-provoking patellar tendon loading program. And although we don't know the perfect treatment protocol, if the OCS were to ask, research points to treatment consisting of education of the child and family on load management and avoiding early sports specialization, as well as addressing any present strength, flexibility, and or motor control or biomechanical impairments. While we're on the subject of adolescence, let's talk about lateral patellar instability. The diagnosis of patellar instability will obviously come with a history of an instance of patellar subluxation or dislocation, where we define a subluxation as a lateral displacement and quick relocation of the patella without a relocation maneuver required, where a true dislocation is one that must be reduced by a specific movement or by a medical professional. Most patellar dislocations are actually reduced just by straightening the knee, so many true dislocations don't actually have to go to the ER and be put back in place. 
Patellar subluxation or dislocation is most common in ages 10 to 17 and most common in females. One clinical test to be familiar with for this population is the patellar apprehension test, where the patellar is pushed laterally with the knee in full extension with the quad relaxed, and the patient is observed for signs of discomfort, apprehension, or quad contraction in order to keep the patella located. Remember also that normal patellar glide should be between 25 and 50% of the width of the patella, and greater than this is going to tell you either about MPFL laxity or maybe trochlear dysplasia or something along those lines. The vast majority of research on patellar instability is done on first-time true dislocations, so keep that in mind with the rest of our discussion. Approximately 30% of first-time patellar dislocations will have a subsequent dislocation, though certain subgroups are at even higher risk. The strongest predictor of recurrent patellar instability after initial dislocation are the following. Trochlear dysplasia, skeletal immaturity, age below 18 at first dislocation, female sex, patella alta, greater distance between the tibial tubercle and trochlear groove, and history of contralateral dislocation. Overall, about 60-70% to 70% of first-time dislocators will be successful at preventing future dislocation with non-surgical management. However, individuals with both skeletal immaturity and trochlear dysplasia have a 68% rate of recurrence. The most common surgical options to address patellar instability include distal realignment osteotomies such as the Fulkerson osteotomy, things like trochleoplasties, MPFL reconstruction, and or lateral retinaculum release, or some combination of those procedures depending on the patient's anatomy. A 2015 Cochrane review comparing surgical repair versus non-operative management for first-time dislocators found only low-quality evidence for significant reduction in redislocation rate and possible improvement in function in favor of surgery for first-time dislocation. However, a 2018 study in the American Journal of Sports Medicine found MPFL reconstruction did decrease dislocation rate, but did not improve subjective or objective function compared to bracing and physical therapy. Overall, it's safe to say that even with a full traumatic dislocation, bracing and physical therapy should be first-line management in absence of other problems such as a loose body or other severe osteochondral injury, though more consideration should be given to surgery for those that have multiple risk factors for recurrent subluxation, especially skeletal immaturity and trochlear dysplasia. Finally, let's talk patellar tendinopathy, or jumper's knee. The diagnosis of patellar tendinopathy can be made clinically with pain localized to the inferior pole of the patella and or the length of the patellar tendon that is consistently provoked with movements that activate the extensor mechanism and put significant load on the patellar tendon. It is especially common in younger athletes that play sports involving a lot of explosive jumping and running such as volleyball, high and long jump, soccer, sprinting, etc. Patellar tendinopathy is more common in males than females. 
It should pretty much only hurt right at the site and only during activity. It is worse when beginning activity after your period of inactivity and typically will have that warm-up effect and improve as activity continues, similar to patellofemoral pain. The big differentiators between patellar tendinopathy and patellofemoral pain are location, i.e. the distal pole of the patella and in the tendon, versus retropatellar, and whether or not they get any pain at rest, where patellar tendinopathy should not, while you may get moviegoer's sign with patellofemoral pain. And finally, gender, where we note that patellar tendinopathy is biased more toward males, while patellofemoral pain is a lot more common in females. Obviously, you need to rule out all of the other diagnoses we've talked about as well, and remember that patellar tendinopathy should pretty much just hurt at the patellar tendon. Imaging is not typically necessary, but ultrasound and MRI will usually show signs of degeneration of parts of the tendon, tendinosis, neovascularization, and other changes, but the same abnormalities are often found in asymptomatic tendons. Thus, the adage is used, treat the donut, not the hole, as there is typically plenty of good tendon to perform all the tasks we require of it. So treatment is focused on improving the loading tolerance of the healthy tendon rather than fixing the degenerative tendon. More on that in a moment. Now, epidemiologically, 50% of athletes that have patellar tendinopathy will have recurrent symptoms, and 50% of athletes with patellar tendinopathy will retire from their sport due to this issue. So it's really important that we know how to treat this well. And for you studying for the OCS exam, it's important for you to know about how to treat tendinopathy, as our most popular journals have put out a ton of literature on tendinopathy and patellar tendinopathy specifically in the last 5 to 10 years. That being said, let's move on to treatment. As I said, our knowledge has grown a lot in this area recently, so if you've been out of the literature for a while, this is definitely an area to spend some time on. The times of ultrasound, only doing eccentrics and stretching, and avoiding pain should be long past now. We'll talk through four main categories of recommendations for treatment of patellar tendinopathy. First, analgesic techniques. Two, pain monitoring. 3. Progressive tendon loading, and 4. All the rest. First, let's talk pain relief. We have great power to relieve pain even during a lot of activity or during a sporting season with isometrics and taping or strapping. Isometric patellar tendon loading has been shown to induce analgesia and decrease quad inhibition. Studies such as Rio et al. in 2015 use a protocol of 5 by 45 second holds in mid-range. Think of like a Spanish squat or a partial incline squat or mid-range on a knee extension machine. Other studies have supported this protocol as well and shown this to be a good practice for use in season with athletes prior to games or practice in order to decrease pain during play. Although both isotonic and isometric exercises have been shown to decrease overall pain in season, 
Isometrics induce significantly greater short-term analgesia, which allows for greater loading with an isotonic program following or greater participation in an athlete's sport. The question follows then, do we need to have these athletes stop their sport in season to rehab this injury? Overall, evidence support that there is not significant danger in allowing continued sport participation with implementation of a loading program. In addition to isometrics, patellar tendon sports taping and patellar tendon strapping are both effective at reducing or eliminating pain during activity participation. Our second category is pain monitoring. Although we can relieve pain, pain is allowable and even encouraged within a certain range with patellar tendon rehabilitation. How much, how often, and with what load we perform exercises should be pain-based. Here are the rules. Pain is allowed to reach but not exceed 5 out of 10 on the NPRS during, immediately after, or the morning after an activity or exercise. And in the course of rehab, overall level of pain and or stiffness should not increase from week to week. This principle was first put forth by Silbernagel et al. in 2007 with regard to Achilles tendinopathy, but has been borne out multiple times in the studies with patellar tendinopathy as well. Now that we know the pain rules, our third category, the bread and butter, is the progressive patellar tendon loading program. Progressive patellar tendon loading should be the mainstay of patellar tendinopathy rehab. We understood this partially with the whole eccentrics craze, and eccentrics do work, but only because they allowed us to load a little heavier, and we make people do them really slowly. However, we now know that the best rehab program is going to be a progressive tendon loading program that begins more with isometrics and progresses through stages of slow heavy loading to even heavier loading and finally on to plyometric and sport-specific loading and that that is superior to eccentric-only loading. In their recently published 2021 study in BJSM, Breda et al. used a progressive tendon loading program which had superior outcomes in pain, function, and return to sport to a more classic eccentric decline squat program. They used a four-stage approach where each stage had to last at least one week, and criteria for progression to the next stage was having 3 out of 10 or less pain with all activities in that stage. In the first stage, they utilized daily 5 by 45 second isometric contractions with increasing weight as tolerated. In this study, they did that on a leg press. Then in stage 2, they maintained isometrics on every first day and implemented heavy slow isotonic loading every second day, beginning with 4 sets of 15 and progressing slowly to 4 sets of 6 with heavier load. Then in stage 3, on every third day, they added plyometric and other high tendon load energy storage and release exercises, such as jump squats, box jumps, and cutting maneuvers, all while still performing isometrics on every first day and isotonics on every second day. 
Finally, in stage four, they were progressed to sport-specific activities and exercises every two to three days while still performing the isometric loading on days that they were not performing sport-specific activities. Return to competition was advised only after they were able to perform all stage four activities with three out of ten or less pain. Obviously, don't go memorize this protocol for the OCS, but I detailed it because it summarizes a lot of the concepts from research in recent years and because it's a pretty good new study that demonstrated greater improvement with thoughtful progression of loading than with a heavy loading or eccentric-only program. It also highlights the need to incorporate plyometric activities, sport-specific activities, jumping and landing mechanics, etc., rather than leaving these individuals when they are able to do ADLs and heavy slow loading without pain. Fourth and finally, we have the rest. What we've talked about thus far should encompass the vast majority of what you do with these patients and should be considered the non-negotiables. Beyond that, any other patient impairments can and should be addressed, such as hip strength, flexibility, biomechanics, motor control, etc. There is weaker evidence for things like extracorporeal shockwave therapy, low-level laser, PRP injections, and even peritendinous corticosteroid injections. But it's important to note that all of the studies where these treatments had significant effect also included some level of patellar tendon loading. Now, that was probably more detailed than you will need to know for the OCS. But remember overall that isometrics and taping or strapping are analgesic and can allow for decreased or pain-free exercise and sport participation. A pain-based progressive patellar tendon loading program should dominate what we do with these individuals, and we can load them up to but not exceeding 5 out of 10 pain during, after, or the next day after activity or exercise. Your loading program should progress all the way to plyometric sport-specific activity, taking into account jumping and landing mechanics and the individual demands of the sport in question. And of course, treat whatever else you find. Oh, and by the way, ultrasound, whether pulsed or continuous or whatever else, has been proven to do nothing for these individuals. The only thing we haven't talked about yet is the other side of jumper's knee, quadriceps tendinopathy. Quad tendinopathy is very similar to patellar tendinopathy in that the quad tendon and the patellar tendon are both part of the terminal aspect of the extensor mechanism and thus will be provoked by a lot of the same things. However, it's much less common than patellar tendinopathy and you can obviously expect it to present above the patella rather than below. Quad tendinopathy will have pain provoked more specifically with deeper loaded knee flexion, as that is mechanically where more load will be placed preferentially on the quad tendon rather than the patellar tendon. Overall, we don't know a ton about how to treat these differently than patellar tendinopathy, but there was a good clinical commentary in JOSPT in 2019 by Sprague, Epsley, and Silbernagel on distinguishing patellar and quadriceps tendinopathy. They suggest using all the same principles that we have already discussed with patellar tendon loading, but adjusting the program to be cautious with loading deep into knee flexion during the acute stage, 
but to be certain to progress to loading progressively deeper ranges of knee flexion and to do so with varied degrees of hip extension range of motion in order to bias different aspects of the quad tendon due to differing levels of rectus femoris involvement, for example, including both a reverse Nordic exercise and a deep squat or deep leg press. That wraps up this episode of OCS Field Guide. If you haven't already, tell your friends and colleagues that are studying for the OCS about our podcast. And if you are interested in using MedBridge or already are a user, be sure to use our code FIELDGUIDE to get the maximum discount when you sign up or renew. Thanks for listening to OCS Field Guide. Don't forget to subscribe and then head to physiofieldguide.com for practice questions and more resources.